0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Thank you, Jordan, and good morning again, everyone. Uh, My name is Steve King, as Jordan said, and uh, let me be another Uh, Face and person to welcome you here to Liberty this morning. Um, Jordan appropriately uh, mentioned and described these times as strange, uh, albeit maybe not. We've never been in normal times, but they certainly are somewhat strange today in that we are wearing masks when we say hi to each other and we pass the peace. Um, and when we live in community with one another, and so that may that may be something that ends up being a barrier for us to really pursue each other, meet someone new, say hello, give a handshake or a hug. Right? We're not doing some of those things as as readily right now, um, and so uh, we may not be knowing each other very well. So if you don't if you don't know someone, I encourage us to still get to know people despite a barrier maybe uh, existing there. And, and if we have not met, again, my name is Steve. I'm one of three elders here at Liberty Church. Um, John is here as well. Um, and Pastor Matt, who's our head pastor, he's out of town, coming back today from a Liberty Network church retreat. Um, so Liberty Church, we're part of a network of churches, and he's been with other leaders at the tail end of this week, um, talking about vision and mission for our entire network. He's coming back from that today. So today we're continuing in our sermon series that we've been in for this summer on faithful presence. We're exploring how faithful presence is an overarching theme of Scripture, a narrative woven into the history of God's people wherein we see both descriptive and prescriptive ways by which we are to live that would rightfully be called faithful and righteous. This faithful presence is also reflective of God and how he interacts with his creation. Most notably, we see throughout Scripture God faithfully pursuing his creation, certainly even in the redemption of men and women made in his image from the corruption and curse of sin and death. And he even does this by becoming present in his creation, in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the opening sermon of this series, just over a month ago, Pastor Matt identified that as Christians, and therefore as part of our distinct identity and ethic, we must intentionally live faithfully, as opposed to unfaithfully, meaning there's a difference between those two. That is the purpose of our sermon series this summer, to identify what faithfulness looks like and what it means to live in such a way that demonstrates our belief in something more and better and necessary and also something required and commanded of God and by God for us as Christians. Matt identified well in that first sermon that there's a tension that comes for Christians as we pursue faithful presence in the world while not succumbing to the demands of the world itself, most notably in the ways that it's corrupted by sin. Truly, we read in 1 John chapter 2 that we're not to love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there is a great tension to align with the common grace of God in the world, the good things we see of God in the world, and to reject some other things, but also, here's tension, to redeem some things too, as we're called to be salt and light in God's creation. So we must live in this tension and pursue faithful presence with joy, and not fake joy, but joy rooted in God's steadfast love. This will, of course, create only more tension for us as Christians because at some point, the world will reject us for this. But since our joy is to be the inspiration of our faithful presence, let's turn now to the source of that joy itself as we consider faithful presence in work. That's our focus today, faithful presence in work. And let's immediately turn to Scripture, and we'll soon be to our central verses for today, which are from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But I'm going to start real quick with a very fast summary review of Genesis 1 through 3. Um, and so you, you're welcome to, to start to, to turn there with me if you'd like. I'm going to move things pretty quickly. We want to be reminded of the corruption of God's good creation. By sin and death. We must remember again that unfaithful presence and faithful presence is a division between living by the flesh and living by the Spirit, loving the things of this world and loving the things of God's kingdom, which are not of this world. So we must remember that sin and death corrupted God's good creation, as it will teach us much about how and why a Christian can have joy, and specifically how and why a Christian can have joy in work. So again, this is a a summary review of Genesis 1 through 3. If you're there with me, that's great. I'm going to jump around a little bit. In Genesis chapter 2, we find God finishing what's called his work and resting. He's resting from all the work that he did in Genesis chapter 1, or is accounted for in Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation of the world, including making man, man and woman in his image. And near the end of Genesis 1, and also in Genesis 2, we see that God empowers man and woman to work. He gave them authority. He commissioned them. He gave them responsibility. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. But then, in Genesis 3, as a result of disobedience and deliberate disobedience of God's command... Sin enters the world, and that's, that's on our behalf, right? Our deliberate disobedience. Sin enters the world, and God outlines the consequences of this corruption. In part, they are childbearing pains are intensified. The work of childbearing is full of agony and hard labor for women. Eating of the ground will be by means of painful labor by men. And bread will be eaten by the sweat of the brow, it tells us. Truly hard work. We also see sins corruption bring the penalty of death as was warned about by God in Genesis 2:17. In Genesis 3 though, it describes that in our returning to dust, we're humiliated. For the ground which we work so hard to sustain ourselves is ultimately the place to which we will return, and that's in shame nonetheless. So today we're we're not going to review now the entirety of God's work in pursuing men and women for redemption as shown in all of scripture. But a summary of sin's corruption and our separation from God is helpful as we now turn to a specific example, a specific telling of the work of God and redemption, specifically in, and as it's accounted for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. God's work of redemption is glorified in the work of Christ. So here now, these verses from 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read to the end, but I am going to skip some verses in the middle, so I'll let you know. When I'm going to skip there, but starting in verse chapter or chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am who I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And here with me, skip down to verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not. In vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please bow your heads as I pray for us. God, in your grace to us, you have given us your word. And by your word, we know of the victory we have through Christ. God, all of our praise and honor is due to you, for you have redeemed us into your kingdom. Encourage us by your word and spirit to have confidence in how we can live faithfully in glory to you and in witness to the world. Amen. In in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is giving an incredibly rich summary of the work of Christ and the work of God, specifically and exclusively in highlighting how the work of Christ is redeeming men and women from the corruption of sin and the curse of death. And there are implications for faithful presence in our work as a result. Remember, too, that we're studying the revelation of God that is woven throughout Scripture. The Bible is not a reference guide where we can just look up the word work and find all we need to know in one or two paragraphs. When learning about faithful presence, we consider the entirety of Scripture. Nevertheless, we find principles throughout Scripture that do act as beacons of light, beckoning us to find clarity on doctrine and Christian living. And here in 1 Corinthians, we find Paul highlighting the work of Christ and then declaring in verse 58, therefore, right? Which is meaning, he's saying, because I said all this, because of all this I said, which is because of the work of Christ, because death is defeated and sin no longer reigns over us, and since we have victory through Jesus, meaning he is the one to whom we now owe all of our praise and allegiance, therefore, because of this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And as I said earlier, we can expect to find a distinction here between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, and Paul is highlighting that distinction. The work of Jesus now results in this encouragement and command. That there is a difference between before Christ did this and because Christ did this. And this is an entryway for us to consider what it means to, in response to the work of Christ and our redemption, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our work is not in vain. And Paul uses that term vain five times in just the verses we read today. For something to be in vain is for it to be useless, to produce nothing of value or nothing of fulfillment. If our belief is in vain, if God's grace is in vain, if our preaching is in vain, if our faith is in vain, or if our labor is in vain, it's worthless. It's not belief, grace, preaching, faith, or labor labor that produces anything of lasting fulfillment. But Paul says that God makes these things not in vain because of the work of Christ. And our focus today is to show how our work is not in vain. So how can we be faithful in our work as a response to the work of Christ. I want to address this in two main segments, one of which challenges us when we're thinking too little of work, and one of which, one of which challenges us when we're thinking too much of work. So first, thinking too little of work in faithfulness to God. When I say thinking too little of work, I mean that we can have an indifference to work. Our work is in vain because we don't think it has much value to begin with. We disparage the work that we do or that others do. We belittle work or underestimate the importance and effect of work. We may even see it just as a necessary evil, a result of the fall, a result of sin, and not something that has value within itself. And not just the results it produces, but the process of work. We don't believe the process of work can create joy and satisfaction for us, let alone be a source of joy and satisfaction for us. John Wooden, the famed men's basketball coach from UCLA from decades ago, once said that the journey is worth more than the end. And that's his old school way, in, of saying hotel or destination, right? If we, were to go, if we were to travel to an inn. He believed that the process had far more value than arriving at the intended destination or the goal. And he used this as a concept in coaching his team through, long, through a long season of daily, grueling practices in hopes of arriving at that one day at the end where they could compete for or win a championship. And spoiler alert, he won 10. He's widely regarded as one of the most excellent coaches, even of process, of all time. When we're indifferent to work, we believe quite the opposite, though, that the ends may actually justify the means or only justify the means, because arriving at the goal is all that matters. The process of work is valuable only if we arrive at the intended goal. This indifference can create apathy within us. There is a lack of concern, a lack of enthusiasm for work itself. Our approach is just to get through it or treat it only as a means to get us to the next thing we want or the next place we want to be. We begin working for the weekend and treating work as a bridge from one fun event or dinner party or trip or night of watching TV shows to the next time we get to do that thing. We even develop a routine of calling Wednesday hump day, right, because it's the middle of the week, and so after working hard for Monday and Tuesday, we've now crested and we can come over the hump of Wednesday, come all the way down, it's smooth sailing to the finish from here. And please hear me, calling Wednesday hump day is not in and of itself sinful, right? But can we also see for a moment that the person who wakes up on Wednesday and thinks it's hump day still has 60% of the work week left. They haven't even started the third day of five, right? So there's so much time left to work. That should cause us pause, if nothing else, to evaluate our value of work and the opportunities it provides in and of itself, And related to apathy, indifference can cause sloth. And the Bible has much to say about sloth. Sloth is, of course, laziness and idleness and sluggishness. Our indifference to work, thinking too little of it, can cause cause sloth to reign over our time and throughout our body. In the TV show The Office, there's an episode where a bunch of people are assigned to empty a truck into the warehouse, and it's not a job that falls within their usual responsibilities. These are the office workers coming down to the warehouse and emptying a truck. And there's one of the characters suggests that they try to form an assembly line to be more efficient in the task. And Stanley, one of his coworkers, whose character is always somewhat routinely sluggish, disagrees wholeheartedly and says, this is a work-out-the-clock situation. Right? Meaning the process of this work is not important. All that matters is doing this until we get to get until we get to go home. Making it better had no value to him. That is sloth for the value of work. And Scripture warns us much about sloth, including in Proverbs 10, where it says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him, to the person who is that person's boss. Proverbs 15 says. Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Right There is little, if any, production to the one who is slothful. And Jesus, in Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, calls the person who is afraid of his work wicked and slothful and condemns him. Apathy and sloth are sins that take root in our indifference to work. When we think too little of work, our work is in vain because we don't think it has much value to begin with. So what is a faithful response? What has the redemption of God made possible to combat this approach so we may have a faithful presence in this world by how we work? By what God has done through Christ, we can again see that work is a good gift from God that was commanded of us before sin ever entered the world. To work and to work well is to honor God. We should not think too little of a gift from God. Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, also wrote in Colossians 3 a somewhat well-known charge to Christians that whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ, he says, in our work. And this passage glorifies that the work of Christ rolls back the corruption of sin, making possible a change in perspective and behavior from how sin reigned in this world to the hope we now have in our work in obedience to Christ. And then this passage in Colossians that I just referenced, Paul's addressing husbands and wives and parents and bond servants. And while today is not intended to address the presence of bond service during this time or any time, and truly I don't mean that, I don't say that as a way to gloss over it. As Christians, we must know the heart of God. And, and, and God commands us to at times, like I said before, we, we reject part of the world, we embrace the common grace in the world from God, we also work as salt and light to redeem we need to redeem people from slavery to sin and slavery to sinful institutions. So let us be a church that's willing and eager to do that. But while today is not intended to address bond service as a whole, we do want to see that Paul shines, uh, shines light on the reclamation of work for all people. Even to the point of seeing that work not only serves people in this world, but even more so Our joy in the quality of work serves God most and is rewarded more greatly by God than any worldly reward can be. And so the fuel of our steadfastness, steadfastness, our immovability, and our abounding in the work of the Lord is joy, and it is joy in knowing what God has done in giving us victory over sin and the curse of death. This joy fuels our lives as Christians, including our work. And joy aligns us as well with the mission of God. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ, working in the lives of others to bring them into reconciliation with God. That's what we needed reconciliation with God. And now we work as ambassadors to bring others into reconciliation with God so they may see and benefit from God's redemptive work. And this is true for our part time jobs and our full time jobs, our service to one another, our chores, or our simple tasks. This is true even when we think of work we're doing as ordinary, right? Maybe it's ordinary work we're doing at any moment, not something that would be described as exceptional. Back in the 1960s, when then-President John F. Kennedy was touring NASA for the first time, he was walking down the hall and saw a man carrying a broom, and he was a custodian. And he stopped and he asked, what do you do here at NASA? And the man replied, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. This man understood that he played a part, even a part that many would think too little of, in the grander mission of the organization for which he worked. He was a custodian, but NASA needed excellent custodians. In being united with Christ, because of the victory of God, we see ourselves as recipients of the mission of God, reconciled to God, and now also part of the mission of God, on mission with God, We should not think too little of how we express this joy in the work we do each day. Tim Chalice, a a Christian um, pastor and and speaker and writer, uh, writes on faithfulness in this concept of ordinary work. He says, Work is not significant only when it utilizes my full capacity or full capabilities. Work is not significant only when it offers an unusual challenge or special opportunity. Work is not significant only when it is measurable in dollars and cents or praise and compliments. Work has intrinsic significance because it gives me the opportunity to do something with joy, with joy in the Lord. I can do my work in such a way that it glorifies God, or I can do it in such a way that it dishonors Him. Anything I can do to God's glory has significance we should be thankful for, the, for not only those who do ordinary work well, but also when we have the opportunity to do ordinary work well. For we have an opportunity to do it with the joy of the Lord. That is faithfulness against thinking too little of work. So second, what must we also consider now in thinking too much of work? And when I say thinking too much of work, I mean to say that we've placed too much of an emphasis on our participation in work and the merit due to us because of our work. In thinking too little of work, we work in vain because we treat it too much as useless. In thinking too much of work, we work in vain because it's not meant to be all that we assume it is. Our efforts become useless because they cannot produce that for which we strive. Paul, when writing in 1 Corinthians, that our labor is not in vain is echoing Psalm 127. We read that as our scripture reading today. There we read that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And we'll get to the wisdom of those verses in just a moment, but let us consider what anxious toil looks like functionally in our work. Anxious toil comes when we over-identify with our work and its results, both good and bad. This is because in our over-identification with our work, we become successful, right? Or we become failures. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, says if you're successful, it destroys you because it goes to your head. And if you're not, it destroys you because it goes to your heart we become embodiments of the work itself. And our self-esteem can be so wrapped up in what we do. This is so intertwined in our hearts and minds that it becomes commonplace for us to ask someone, what do you do, right, as a primary way of getting to know them? And again, that in of itself is not sinful, right? But we can err too easily by equating who people are with what they do, just like we equate too easily who we are with what we do. We also, in over-identifying with work, develop an overconfidence in our ability to make right decisions and produce successful results, so much so that we believe success is actually due simply or primarily or only because of the choices that we make. Our success or our drive to overcome overcome failure also causes us to live to work instead of working to live. And our self-identification with our work undermines our roles in the church and our families our communities. Now separately, when thinking too much of work and over-identifying with work itself, we can obsess over calling and vocation, right? In a world full of metrics, and this is me preaching to myself, this is where I've seen myself struggle mightily in my life, still do, and probably still will, okay? In a world full of metrics and self-assessments and self-help resources, and endless motivational speakers and TV series that dramatize exciting and supposedly fulfilling lifestyles. We're prone to obsess over making the right decision at the right time to make the most of the right opportunity so as to not miss what we should be doing. This hyper focus can be an outworking of our over identification with work, and perhaps even glamorous work, trying to achieve the premier job so we can have the premier lifestyle so we can feel premier as a result. Now, that set obsession with calling vocation can also be really well intended, okay? We may really want to honor God by doing what we're made to do. We may not want to waste our lives. We shouldn't want to waste our lives. So we rightfully pray to God for wisdom and consider each decision carefully. But we can still wrongfully paralyze ourselves with the belief that finding our calling is like being on a game show. Right, where we're picking between a set of doors to find the right job, and all doors but one have disappointment and even failure before God behind them. Obsessing, over-calling will at best cause us to live in fear of not being in the right job. And at worst, it will, we will become enslaved to the temptation of this world to self-actualize who we are and to be the best version of ourselves through our work. Over-identification with work and obsessing, over-calling are sins that take root in thinking too much of our participation in work and the merit that we're due as a result. Our work is in vain. So what is a faithful response? What has the redemption of God made possible to combat this approach so that we may have a faithful presence in the world by how we work? By what God has done through Christ, we can abound In the work of the Lord, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. Not our own work. And join with God in the work that he is both doing and calling us to do. This is where the wisdom and joy of Psalm 127 is seen for Christians. The psalm does not contrast those who do work and those who don't work because the Lord is working. This is a significant point for us. We can't miss it. God is not calling us to not work. And certainly not to be slothful, as we referenced earlier. Truly, God commands us to work. And as we saw in Colossians, to do all of our work as if working for the Lord. So Psalm 127 is not instructing us to abdicate from work so God can be the only one working. Rather, this is a God-saturated view of work in which we see God's power in creation and preservation since we build and we watch over If we do these things on our own accord and without trusting in the sovereignty of God, we, as the psalm says, rise up early and go to bed late and eat with anxious toil. That toil is a heavy burden and a heavy pressure to succeed. But if we do this with with trust in God's sovereignty, We don't toil anxiously, rather we experience sleep. And not just sleep as a recharge to then wake up and do it again the next day, but truly sleep as rest and submission to God, trusting that he is the decisive and ultimate laborer in and over what we do. Paul, earlier in this letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3, reveals this in addressing divisions within the church as some were claiming superiority because of their proximity to the work of Paul and others because of their proximity to the work of Apollos, Paul said it is neither of them who should be glorified. Rather, God is to be glorified because he gives the growth. And recognize this, both Paul and Apollos are credited in working. Paul even compares himself to a skilled master who lays a foundation. But Paul says, we are God's fellow workers and God is the one building. This partnership with God and the recognition that God is the foremost worker in and over our work gives us freedom from over-identification with work. It gives us freedom to be successful and freedom to embrace humility. There is freedom for the Christian to be successful. Success is not something to apologize for. But it can become an idol if we over-identify with it. But success can be good. After all, we want to be proficient in our jobs just like Paul compared himself to a skilled master. There was no shame in that for him. Tim Keller comments on the goodness of success for Christians by asking and answering a simple question. He said, what should a Christian pilot do? And he answers it by saying, he should land the plane. That's what a Christian pilot should do. Land the plane, please, please right we should strive for excellence and success in our work but our freedom to be successful must be hand in hand with humility writing again in every good endeavor keller suggests there is great freedom in humility he says that at every age when he looks back to 10 years ago he sees how much he didn't know then and how unkind he may have been to those around him as the result of that arrogance And he says that ultimately, right now, we should recognize that we're still learning. God is still teaching us much about what we do in our work. Oh, and also, we're probably right now still prone to be a jerk. We just might have to take 10 years to look back on that and realize it again. So that should cause humility in us. We should have humility in our work. And this humility helps us understand what calling is and what calling isn't. And Keller provides helpful guidance here too in warning Christians not to think of calling as a singular measure or a simplistic choice between the right job and everything else. Rather, Keller suggests that calling is a combination of three things. Ability, which is being able to do something. Affinity, which is enjoying what you're doing. And opportunity, meaning you're actually invited into this work by someone else. These three things can come in any order. You may find you have an opportunity to do something and then come to learn that you both like it and you're good at it. right? Or you may pursue doing something that you're really good at and you like, but it takes longer than desired for someone to actually give you an opportunity to do that in anything that would amount to work. However it comes together, we should be encouraged that calling is more complex and at the same time more simple than we make it out to be. Because truly we're partnering with God in our work, not blazing our own path. And this partnership with God and our belief that God is the decisive and ultimate labor in all that we do gives us freedom to be both successful and humble. And to be faithful against thinking too much of our work and the merit that we are due. So with all that said... Let's, let's transition to close for a few minutes here as we focused on how we can think too little of work or too much, much of work, and both of these as the result of the corruption of sin, it is supremely important that we remember that no matter where on that spectrum we fall, and it may change season to season or day to day or perhaps even task to task or job to job, it is most important to remember that God has redeemed work for men and women made in his image. Truly God, through the work of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, has set men and women free from slavery to sin and also sin's corruption of our labors. God is restoring us. He's calling us back to the uncorrupted Imago day The men and women made in his image and commissioned in the garden to work and keep his creation. Now this process is not yet final, but it will be when Christ comes again, as Paul identified in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable putting on the imperishable. In the present time, as commanded by Scripture, and as a consequence of Christ's redemption, we respond now in faithfulness in our work. And so with all that we have already said this morning, I want to charge us also in one specific area, that our faithful work includes a commitment to good and moral work. For indeed, God desires for us to do good good and moral work that is joyful work yes but also kind work and loving work and honest work work ultimately that points people to god himself when people see the joy integrity energy and pursuit of excellence with which we work they see the character of god and may also learn of the hope we have in christ and isn't that what god calls us to as ambassadors Right? That we would help others become reconciled to God. Just demonstrating our good and moral work is not enough. We do as ambassadors want to reconcile people to God. But it starts with doing good and moral work. So our world needs this as it has since the day that sin entered the world. God has not sat back and let it unravel. He has worked for the good of his creation and we are now working for the good of his creation. In The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, Lewis writes about the moral irony that exists in our culture, wherein the world demands qualities that are themselves made impossible to obtain. When school shootings occur, or when lives are degraded by prejudice and racism and murder, when children are abandoned or trafficked, when ethnic groups around the world are enslaved, when governments act corruptly, and when people slander one another the world demands values the world demands justice the world demands atonement does it not the world demands morality we see this all around us right now all of this supposedly via objective truth but we quickly see how objective becomes subjective to the world's standards and how many refuse to bend a knee to christ who declared he is the way the truth and the life Lewis writes that the world, in this moral irony, removes the organ, that is, the heart of morality, but demands the function, that is, morality itself. And it should not be lost on us, as Christians, that we're told in Ezekiel that God gives the faithful new hearts. And in Ephesians, we're told that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The world removes the organ but demands the function. As God's people via the Spirit in our work, we are the organ, the heart of God, and we provide the function, the good works. So in our work, in our homes with one another, in our children, in our full-time jobs, and part-time jobs, in the workplace, in our hobbies, our chores, in our mundane tasks, we must not think too little of work because God gives work value. And we must not think too much of work because God is the decisive and ultimate laborer. And we must do good and moral work because it reflects God and he has made us ready for it. Our culture needs the fruit of the Spirit to be evident and on display in our work. And we can know that because of the work of Christ, that work that we would do It is not, it is never in vain. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads as I pray for us. God, we praise you for your work and the work that Christ accomplished, the work now that the Spirit does in the hearts of believers to reconcile us to you. We live in sin. We are corrupted by sin But by the work of Christ, we are redeemed. We are your people. You call us your sons and your daughters. And you call us to work in response. God, I pray that we would see the value in all work. That we would recognize that you are the decisive and ultimate labor in the work being done in us and through us for the good of the world. God, help us to do good and moral work, to submit ourselves to living by the Spirit, to being faithful in our presence in this world. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.